has eroded from the institutions that run our lives. Our leaders fall from grace or prove obsolete. In the vacuum, charlatans, clowns, and the patently unserious vie to take their places. We are learning where we are, and we are coalescing around the idea of where we want to go. What remains obscured is who will lead us there. The sacred cookout now has to look deep within itself to understand how our leaders failed or how we failed in choosing them so we can find and elevate the true about-shit leaders that can guide us to the promised land. Down-ass members of the culture, we come not to nominate ourselves as leaders of the revolution. I personally have too many skeletons in my closet for that nonsense. We don't even really want to convince you to vote for any one candidate. We come simply to, with nuance and depth, start a conversation about making better choices in the voting booth, with our political donations, and when the donation plate gets passed. Today, our advocatus diaboli, the warrior princess Diane Wah, <laughs> the genius Gaius, and yours truly, Juanch de Medellin, sitting in, uh, screaming obscenities from a distance is Haas. <laughs> <laughs> Much love to all the listeners out there. We went extra nerdy on our last pod, and the love we got from y'all was honestly really humbling and encouraging. If you keep listening, we'll keep talking shit. Had you guys seen the intro? I don't. I maybe they've never no, showed anyone the, first the intro. Time I'm hearing it. <laughs> I didn't show anybody <laughs> the good, intro. That was good. I know I got a laugh from. Uh, I got a laugh from guys. That's good. So our previous episode was a deep dive into the skepticism of newly acquired allies we have in the movement. This time around, we're breaking down the long-standing side-eye black, indigenous, people of color have had of our own leadership and America's two-party system. We often throw around the phrase that black people in general, and black voters specifically, are not a monolith. But we've re we rarely expound on what the diaspora looks like in practice. However, with our current push for equality and equity, it's vital that we spend some time looking inwardly and come to terms with the political manipulation of the broad spectrum of blackness in the United States. So, you know, a lot like how last episode was addressing, like, the why, like, this episode has its own questions that, like, ultimately that's what we're trying to, like, tease out. So, um, first of them is, you know, how did we get here? Like across the progression of American politics and the two-party system, how did we end up at this moment? Um, and what were the kind of incremental, very intentional decisions that were made that led to this point? Um, beyond that is, 
is there room or space for us ever to come to a shared understanding, if not a broad consensus of like what is ultimately best for black people? What are the cultural foundations of uh, black conservatism, uh, black moderateness, uh, black radicalism, black liberalism? Like there's ways that we can kind of trace all of those uh, belief systems back to pretty much slavery and the end of slavery. Um, And then taking all of that knowledge, how can we reevaluate our own ideologies to have a more, uh, to, to look at our perspectives through a more informed lens? Like, you know, as much as we'd like to convince people to see things our way, like that's not really the goal. Like whatever you vote for, I just want to know that at the end of the day, when you walked into the voting booth and you voted, like you voted for what you felt were your own best interests. And if those don't align with me, then fine, so be it. You're entitled to that. But what I hate is knowing that someone voted out of ignorance and against something that they would have actually supported if it had been presented another way and they were willing to do their own work and, and look into it. How we're bamboozled so, and led astray yeah. and run amok. And so viewing all of that from like, you know, 10,000 view broad strokes, it's like what does black leadership look like within this cultural shift? Like how can modern black leadership address these things that we're talking about and trying to break down to you? Um, so with all that said, we're going to start on the right and then work our way to the left historically um, <laughs> of the black diaspora and black thought, black leadership in America. Because I think it's really interesting, like, you know, we've been talking about like in very, you know, pretty much since our first episode, things like the pound cake speech, um, the way that we speak to each other, uh, even the refrain that we hear now, like when we talk about defund the police and people are like, oh, what about black on black crime? What about Chicago? Blah, blah, blah. All of these retorts, all of this stuff is traced back to literally like the end of slavery and, and before honestly. Um, so we can understand where we are by looking at our past and then figure out how to break down these systems that have been used to hold us down these, uh, tropes that we have been forced into. So that brings us to kind of the original pound cake speech in American history. And that is, uh, Booker T. And by the way, so wait, before we launch into the the OG pound cake speech, (laughs) yes, uh, yes. We may have to give context to people who don't know about mm-hmm. the pound cake speech. Um, sure. Listen, if you haven't done the Cosby episode, please motherfucking do the Cosby episode. It is somehow still relevant. Oh, my God. Super yeah. motherfucking relevant. It's more relevant now than ever. Like, uh, And so the, what we mean by the pound cake speech is Bill Cosby at the 50th anniversary of Brown versus the Board of Education gave a speech where he blamed – uh, African-Americans for the state of the African-American community. Uh, and it is uh, the big uh, – the reason why it's called a pound cake speech is uh, Cosby thought it was okay to shoot a black man in the back of the head if he's stealing a pound cake, uh, a 50-cent piece of pound cake, because why was he stealing the 50-cent piece of pound cake in the first place? So uh, basically advocating for the death penalty when a black person steals uh, – you know, tiny items. Uh, so pre-Ferguson, that's the kind of thing. Pre-Eric Garner, uh, pre-George Floyd, that's the kind of thing uh, that uh, that 
black people actually clapped for in the respectability politics uh, situation. And uh, so when we talk about the pound cake, it's not Uncle Ruckus. Uh, Magruder didn't invent it. No, no, no. No, actually, I feel like we've coined a new term because when we start talking about the pound cake speech, uh, our binge lingo, it's basically code word for a black person that is blaming black people for problems of racism, essentially. That's kind of what I think it's turned right. into. Right, and I think, I think Uncle, Tom, Uncle Tom lets people off the hook. Right, because Uncle yeah, Tom, yeah. he was a he was a he was self hating. Like he was a part of Uncle Tom was self hating, but he was part of the system. He was yeah. he was stuck up in it uh, on his own. While William H. Cosby was above the fray, could say whatever he wanted to say, and instead of using it to uplift his people, he blamed his people for where they are. Exactly, and it, and it, and and something as seemingly innocuous as a speech that honestly most people didn't hear firsthand, but it gets referenced a lot, has become a framework for a very specific type of thinking that should have never taken hold, but is kind of inherent in most black people. Like, it's the kind of stuff that I would hear when I was growing up that, you know, you're going to have to work twice as hard to, 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 to be taken seriously or to be just as good. And then I would internalize that. And I know all of my friends who are immigrants, sure, yeah. we all internalize this idea and accept it that it's, that's okay. And that, and so, that, that some, and that's that little seed that starts to gaslight America and gaslight black America into thinking that where we're at is somehow our fault. So the pound cake, when we use the term pound cake, it's our shorthand for an extremely disgusting uh, example <laughs> of respectability politics. You know, so as I mentioned before, this really starts at Booker T. Washington. Um, and again, we're not going to spoon feed you all of our history. Um, we want people to like, we, we want to encourage people to do their own research and build their own informed opinions on our history, our culture, and our future. Um, but to provide a bit of context for the discussion, uh, so Booker T. Washington a lot of people will know he's, you know, very famous African-American politician, educator. Um, But uh, he was actually born a slave and uh, he was freed at the end of the Civil War at the age of nine. At the time, he was illiterate. Um, He went on to actually found the Tuskegee Institute, one of the first and most successful uh, HBCUs in the country. Um, But one of the things he's most famous or infamous for is his 1895 Atlanta Address, which is later dubbed the Atlanta Compromise by W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, And so it's important to note that one, 1895, that's only 30 years after the end of the Civil War in 1865. So it's very much like very topical, everyone's mind. This is post, uh, this is like the height of Reconstruction, really. This is post the first eight years after the end of the war where we were initially promised our 40 acres and a mule out of uh, field order number 15, and then that was yanked away. So there's already been a lot of transitional turmoil from the end of the Civil War, black people struggling for their freedom, um, a lot of things that we talked about. There have been about, violence, massacres, poll exactly. violence, poll intimidation. The Klan started to ride. The White League started to ride. So it was the fight against Reconstruction. Exactly. Um, and so Booker T. Washington is invited to Atlanta to this cotton and agricultural expo 
1895. And he basically gives the prototype pound cake speech for any pound cake speech uttered before that. Um, just to break down some of the It was the pound cakeiest. <laughs> yes. The original it, pound cake. The OP. Yes. OG. Um, so, a few of the highlights, quote unquote. Um, so, he referred to blacks who saw elected office over going back to work for whites as ignorant and inexperienced, saying specifically that whatever other sins of the South may be called to bear, when it comes to business pure and simple, it is in the South that the Negro is given a man's chance in the commercial world. And like, think about that. That's immediately after the end of slavery, when people are still being forced to become sharecroppers and still in punitive debt to the same people that just own them. He's telling us that the South is where we have our best chance for gaining economic freedom. Um, Which is a lie. As, as he's saying it, as he's saying it, people are getting lynched. it's a lie. Yeah. Not only are people getting mind, lynched, but they're this, in little, legit, legit worse conditions than they were in slavery. And I know a lot exactly. of white people like to say that shit. Like, oh, uh, it was better when they were slaves. Well, yeah. for a period of time there, if you were a sharecropper or you were working on a company farm where you had to buy shit from the general store, it was legit the truth. That, it's like, think about the fact that you're you're still alive. Like, most of these people he's talking to are... You know, former slave owners, and he knows that this is going to be heard by the former slaves themselves. Like, a lot of people yeah. were still Talk alive. Talk about the room. Been slaves. Yeah, Talk exactly. about the room there, Yeah, guys. so the room. Who was in the so, room? So, yeah, the room. So, the room was all white. It was all white upper class. Like, this was an agricultural expo. So, this is the plantation owners. There were How no, did they react he was, when he got up the, on the stage? <laughs> oh, well, let's get to that. Like, so when they first saw him, there was a lot of murmurs in the crowd. And we'll, like, get to the details later because it was actually recorded um, by a, a, several newspaper reporters. But I think a few of them were pretty telling in their events. But, of, like, he was the only black person, you know, in this specific venue. The one interesting <laughs> thing to point out is that there was an actual part of the expo that was dedicated to how white people had helped black people come up in agriculture post-slavery. So it was very much kind of like the white man's burden uh, exhibit within this larger ex- <laughs> exhibition. And that was wow. actually what so, he was called. So they've been calling racism on. is over. Like Yes. Next thing that he said in this same speech, is, uh, he promised continued servitude in the name of all Southern blacks in exchange for just being treated marginally as humans. Um, Don't kill us. It's Stockholm Syndrome. And before he opened his mouth, he had to know half the room was like, are we going to have to lynch this guy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. what, what comes um, out of his mouth could get him killed. Yeah. I mean, and that's one of the things that we're going to dive into because I think it's, it's, it is very important to like note that uh, power and balance. Uh, All right, so that dirty motherfucker sold us, sold us out for nothing, right? So he, he said, you can be sure in the future as in the past, that you and your families will be surrounded by the most patient, faithful, law-abiding, and unresentful people that the world has seen. This is him speaking to Zippity Zippity-A. <laughs> I think one of the more egregious things comes next is uh, he basically belittled the inherent intelligence and wisdom of freed blacks um, by saying that as we represent to you our humble effort 
at an exhibition of our progress. This is him speaking about the little, uh, you know, black exhibition within the larger cotton and agriculture expo. He says, you must not expect over much. We do not for a moment forget that our part in this exhibition would fall far short of your expectations, but for the constant help that has come from our educational life, not only from the southern states, but especially from northern philanthropists who have made their gifts and constant stream of blessing and encouragement. Um, This is like insane, like to say that these people who have tended your fields, done all the hard labor for 300 years, couldn't suddenly know how to do the same fucking work all of a sudden. Like it's to, to belittle everyone who, yeah, that's a, lot of, that's a lot of, of yes, sir, no, sir. Yeah, yeah it sounds exactly. like it sounds like the the Uncle Ruckus quips in Boondocks when he starts talking about the great white man. But not for nothing, just just to connect this to something. So the the whole philanthropy thing. I mean, you know, definitely uh, uh, required reading for this school days. Oh yes. So you watch school days, and that's the that's the political tension in school days. The Booker T, who literally has the same fucking haircut, is uh, the Giancarlo Esposito character. Oh, my goodness. Julian. And, uh, you know, the W.E.B. Du Bois is the... the free-flowing... Is the... Uh, um, is the, the Jimi Hendrix hair? No, no, no. The... What's his name? His daughter's a porn star? Morpheus, uh, Lawrence Fishburne. Lawrence Fishburne. Fishburne. Yeah, Lawrence... just like Steven Spielberg. So, like, Lawrence was, that was where you went first. Yo, listen, listen, I got contact high already. I got contact high already. So the the uh, Lawrence Fishburne character is the progressive black, mm-hmm. you know, uh, movement. It's the, you know, at that point, it was a little bit back to Africa, a little bit. But the, the, they hadn't tried that yet. the that political thing idea. of the day was divesting from South Africa. Yeah. And when they have, when the dean and another, the dean of the school and another uh, administrator in the school are having a debate over, uh, you know, respected, respect. basically respectability politics, he's saying, mm-hmm. listen, we can't let this go on or our white donors mm-hmm. or the white philanthropists philanthropist money that founded the school they're gonna stop giving us money so like this school days is legit about this debate between booker t and w.e.b du bois required watching so yeah last two highlights um uh, so following that he labeled those who still push for equality as extremists uh saying that the wisest among my race understand that the agitation of questions of social equality is the extremist folly. Um, wow. And then he he wrapped up by excoriating blacks for how the few that did have disposable income chose to spend it while pushing them into a capitalist servitude as low-skilled laborers. That quote is, the opportunity to earn a dollar in a factory just now is worth infinitely more than the opportunity to spend a dollar in an opera house. And, you know, if that doesn't sound like, pull your pants That sounds up, like Cosby. Showing yeah, out like, like, exactly. Cosby, Buy, like buying Cruise. babies Jordans is buying babies Jordans yeah. rather than yeah. uh, buying him hooked on phonics. That's the quote exactly. from the pound cake speech. Exactly. So and the what you just said before about labeling those who push for equality as extremists. That's exactly what Trump and the right and the MAGA people yeah. are saying. 
that just we're him, but Terry Crews. Terry Crews said that a couple of weeks oh, ago. Yeah. He says we should be going for black equality, not black uh, supremacy. Motherfucker, what do you think we're trying to do? <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. And he was not, like warning us to be careful that we're not trying to be black supremacists. I'm like, that's not even a thing until you just yeah, said, it's not like and yeah. now you you're know how creating. Far we have to go before we even yeah. like we're not even South Africa. Yeah. We're not even South Africa. Our call to arms. There's less than fifteen percent. Matter at in the at all. <laughs> Wakanda would literally silent. have to exist before we got to black supremacy. It would, yeah, no, you'd need, you'd need about three not, Wakandas. You need about three Wakandas yeah. for this. Not black power. No, you, they say white power. We say black lives matter at all. Like, yeah. just, we're existing. And it's just, it's just the, like the gaslighting of how the right right now is calling anti-fascist fascists. Like, it's... Yeah. And this is Like, how, it's totally incoherent. And this is yeah. how words define our thought process. Because the, the that right there is how subtle gaslighting works. Mm-hmm. Is that by just changing a couple of words, you're changing the fundamental idea. You're rewriting history without ever actually having to say a lie. So there's a reporter uh, named James Krillman who was a correspondent for the New York World newspaper at the time. And he was covering the um, 1895 Cotton and Agricultural Expo. And... This is what he described of Washington's appearance and then the speech and its reception. When among them, the colored man appeared, a sudden chill fell on the whole assemblage. One after another asked, what's that nigger doing on the stage? But when Washington rose to speak and began by criticizing his people for seeking political and economic power during Reconstruction, the crowd suddenly became very attentive. <laughs> and then I'm he sure quotes, they did. Yeah, and then he quotes Booker T. Washington when he said, our greatest danger is that in the great leap from slavery to freedom, we may overlook the fact that the masses of us are to live by the productions of our hands and fail to keep in mind, to keep in our mind that we shall prosper as we learn to dignify and glorify common labor. It is at the bottom of life that we should begin and not the top. Put your head down. Shut the fuck up and work. And then Krillman described what followed as, and when he had held his dusky hand high above his head, with the fingers stretched apart and said to the white people of the South, on behalf of his race, in all things that are purely social, we can be as separate as the finger, yet one as in the hand in all things essential to mutual progress. And a great sound wave resounded from the walls of the whole audience it was on its feet in a delirium of applause. So we won't date your daughter, but we will make you money. Yes. So this is basically what black political conservatism and respectability politics is based on. And really what that is, is honestly black pragmatism in the face of overwhelming white supremacy. Uh, I'll just say as the legal expert, mm-hmm. as the legal scholar of the crew, um, the the hand... That that uh, that uh, imagery of we can be as separate as the fingers socially, we can be as separate as the as the fingers on the hand, but we come together for progress or to blah blah you know bullshit. But the point is that's separate but equal. Yeah. That's Plessy v. That's Plessy v. Ferguson. Yeah. So I mean, and this he's is, and this the, is the, the the see the connection the thread that goes through all this. He's basically doing proto Plessy v. Plessy v. Ferguson, mm-hmm. separate but equal, and. The pound cake speech that we keep talking about 
was at the 50th anniversary of the decision that overturned separate but equal. Wow. Yes. Okay? All this shit's connected Mm. by a fucking clear thread, by Mm. a super simple thread, a direct connection between what this motherfucker was talking about Mm. and what Cosby was talking about way the fuck later. Yeah. And this is also why this speech is called the Atlanta Compromise later by W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, The whole point was that she correctly identified that this speech also laid the groundwork for Jim Crow. And so it no longer was thought of as the Atlanta address, but it really was a compromise. It was like saying that, hey, we'll give you all of this shit just in exchange for like bare minimum of courtesy as a human being. Which which we never got. Like which which still (laughs) never materialized. Which is still never fucking which we're fighting about today. Yeah. The the meager things that Booker T thought he was selling for his uh, for being docile. The meager things he thought he was selling that for, we still have yet to collect on it. We still have yet to collect on it. It's it's fucking disgusting that you know everybody NPR was saying post race when Obama got elected, but we are legit. <laughs> yeah. The people discussing uh, his speech, discussing Booker T's speech, we are one week away from that. We we have not yeah. moved that much at all. Is if you can't beat them, join them. Writ large, it's saying we can't really ever reasonably expect white people to step up and change. So the only way to make this work out is to just work twice as hard, prove ourselves, and exceed expectations, and then hope that we've clawed our way up enough to just get some sort of uh, recognition. Um, Put your head down and work. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And it's all you see it like throughout history uh, of black people in America is the natural psychological reaction to lynchings, uh, poll violence, intimidation, um, random everyday common ugly racism. Um, You just you learn to shut it down. Like we're taught generation by generation, like everybody goes through like we talk about like the police speech that you have to have with your kids. If you're black and your kids present as black, Um, there's several several speeches that you have to give your children if they present as black or, you know, indigenous people of color in this country, just because we've given up on the idea that the system can change. So the best that and we listen, can do the, the ugliness, is- if you don't like how Karen speaks to you today, imagine the shit she said to your face a hot minute after slavery ended. Like, the Karen's ugliness is thinly veiled today, but back then she could say anything. I mean, not that thinly because the speeches that you're talking about to this day are, are speeches that we give to our family members just to keep each other alive. Why is it that, you know, I'm living in America as a 38 year old black woman. I have a, I have a fucking MFA. I've, I've taught at college and I'm still worried about, coming home alive every day. That's not a a paranoia. That's a real legitimate fear that me and everyone else in America who is black has. And you watch, you watch these old, you watch these films about, um, uh, you know, Thurgood, uh, Thurgood Marshall. You watch glory. You watch all these films about how the black man was carrying himself Back when, you know, back when we, all this stuff was, was just going down. And I don't know about you guys, 
But don't you feel when you watch that like they almost had access to an indignation that we now find almost naturally obscene? Mm. Thurgood Marshall said some shit to white people that I don't think you could say to white people today. (laughs) You know what I mean? I feel like maybe they were because they were less indoctrinated, because they were less Stockholmed than we are now. I feel like they were freer. I felt like, and listen, when we at were least stu- we knew we were slaves. And when we studied about the violence, um, half of this violence—not uh, half of it, but a lot of violence—went the other way. There were black men kidnapping white clan leaders to fuck them up. Like, can you imagine black men going, "Hey, let's kidnap a clan leader"? You know, they're like, "No, we're going to get killed by the FBI." Yeah. You know, like, I, I feel like we have a fear today of cops, of the government, of the FBI. We have a fear today that maybe they didn't have back then and they could be more indignant than us. We, in a lot of ways, maybe we're more docile than they were. It's that it's generational trauma. This is generations yeah. of of understanding in a very real way. The, uh, the 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 cost of, of of rising up like everyone I know I actually I think I'm the only person in my family who has not spent a night in jail my family is not gang members not that you haven't tried no not that I haven't tried <laughs> <laughs> no, not for lack of trying but it is unheard of that a white family that has the level of education or the position that my family has would would be able to say the same thing like we always know what the cost is because either someone ourselves have been have, have been victims of racial violence or at least we know one person. No black person is more than one degree of separation from the uh, the the ills of racism or the the, the consequences of racism or or the it's, bogusness of the promise of justice. Yeah, the bogusness of the promise of equality. Like it's such yeah. a real and direct fear. So yeah, we're docile. We've 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 watched them kill us for generations. Then we hear about it in school, in stories. Yeah, we're fucking docile. We're docile as fuck. But not anymore. Not anymore, <laughs> motherfuckers. No, I I totally think you're like onto something there. Especially like with Diane bringing up generational trauma. Like that was. Like I, I think one of the cool things about how we've started doing the podcast again now is it allows us when we're talking about these like kind of larger subjects and not specifically reacting to a person in pop culture, um, it allows us to kind of dig deeper, but also kind of follow the argument as it goes instead of just trying to stay stuck to a specific person. So generational trauma is actually one of the things that we were researching when we first started writing this episode. Um, so I'm glad that, you know, Diane brought it up because it, it's a real fucking phenomenon. It's a thing that happens. There's a method, there's a method to our madness. Exactly. <laughs> and, and we shouldn't overlook it because I, I think even to your point, Juan, like, you know, you did have this, uh, brief, like, but very strong rebellious moment where, you know, they they were taking direct actions, like, uh, you know, kidnapping clansmen. And I don't know if that's like a, a matter of, you know, even less fear, but maybe just like more immediate connection to the anger and trauma that they just escaped from. Um, and, and they believed that their actions could reverberate. They believed that they yeah. were actually doing something 
where they can win, whereas our society has convinced BIPOCs, uh, has convinced us that there is no promise. There is no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. That you yeah. can rise up and all you'll do is get killed. Yeah. You know, I, I all, you, all you do is get sewn up. All you do is get incarcerated. All you do is get a record. Yeah. All and you do I is get doors closed on you. One of the, when you first said that, like the immediate thing that popped in my mind was like Dave Chappelle um, in his last special when he's talking about, you know, if you look at the people who did go out and try to assassinate police, um, they were former military. They were cops. These were black people who had been trained to fight terrorism. And and they had been told that they're exceptional. They had been told that they were promised something. They had been fighting and laying down their lives for the principles that founded this nation. So dummy them, they believed it. And they fell the hardest when they came back home and saw that it was bullshit. This is the foundation of, you know, black social conservatism. uh, How you see that thread then work its way into the black church, um, which, you know, the black church has always been a support for the black community from slavery onward. Um, you know, despite its roots of being part of how we were kept in bondage, uh, part of the whole colonialist plan of Europeans and bringing Africans over here was to indoctrinate us. But, you know, we can't like remove the black church from understanding black cultural institutions. Yeah, and it's and, and it, the dogma is ready made for it, right? The yeah. dogma is ready made for it because you are not promised anything in this life by Jesus. You're promised a better life in the next one. So you cede you cede this life to master. Yeah. You cede this life to the powers that be. And it's you put your head setup. down, you put your head down, you pray to Jesus every night and you'll get it in the next life. I mean, listen, he said it, uh, you know, turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek is perfect for, uh, <laughs> is perfect for an oppressed people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, what's really interesting, like one of the like, more recent things that happened is someone called out the uh, African-American History Museum that's actually part of the Smithsonian on the uh, National Mall in Washington. Um, and they had released this infographic of uh, what white people believe well, like white Christians believe, and it was stuff like the nuclear family and hard work and ethics and morals. And people were like, wait, what the fuck? Like, that's not just what white Christians believe. That's what, like, all people believe. Like, to wow, the, the fact that it's that ingrained that even an institution like the African American History Museum, which John Lewis helped found, um, would release an infographic that was, like, so tone deaf. To yeah, and and not and and just wrong and just wrong. Yeah, just because, wrong. Because the part, what are the roots of uh, you know this this whole thing is that marriages were broken up when people were mm-hmm. sold. Yeah, yeah. You know the the idea that 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 our love, that black love, is transient and is not mm-hmm. worth the bond the 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 bonds that that white love is. And white because love we is weren't for, human, we were chattel. Yeah, that was it. We and we, just, we were treated like chattel. Listen, listen to, uh, uh, "I Love You, Porgy" by Nina Simone. Well, it's a Gershwin mm-hmm. tune, yeah. But Nina sings it, 
And she's singing about being sold away to someone else uh, and what that was like. And it's fucking heartbreaking. Uh, and so the idea that our families are fucked up because of us, pound cake, <laughs> is not. It's so, yeah. it's, it cuts so deep. Just Christian missions um, were, were, just to give a little bit of history as far as like a little more history of the black church, missionaries were used to go to the dark continent. It was, remember the white man's burden? Darkest Africa. <laughs> and, and the idea was, uh, or, or I guess the, 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 the tagline was that we were going to go over there to, to, to civilize, civilize these darkies to save their lives. And the whole goal was to get information on people that you wanted to colonize. And that was the whole, that the whole science of anthropology is <laughs> for colonialism. And that's what missionaries did under the guise of civilization. They would teach people how to read, do all, bring all this stuff that these people didn't need. And then, um, and, and it was always a form of indoctrination. We just lost John Lewis. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that John Lewis was famous for is, um, one of, one of the first people, and uh, there's a lot of people, but one of the first people who was saying, you know, um, you know, like, we can't, how about now? You keep telling us the promise, you know, the hope of res respectability politics. You yeah. keep promising us that we'll be free. When is that going to happen? And why not now? You know, and there's, there's speeches of him as a kid, the kid who got the shit kicked out of him on Edmund Pettus Bridge, uh, saying, what's, what's wrong with now? Why can't we have it now? Um, and you know, we're still waiting on that hope of respectability mm -hmm. politics and they're still selling it. <laughs> they're still selling it to late today when we've yeah. got lab results, this shit don't work. Yeah. When yeah. we elected Mr. Audacity of hope, what did we get for our first black president? The fucking tea party. He may be the tombstone. He may be the tombstone. Yeah. Barack Obama's presidency. I've campaigned for him. We both Diane and I, we both Diane and I became friends <laughs> over going to Reading, Pennsylvania. Yeah. We knew each other as kids, but we became friends again 12 years ago. He brought us together. When we campaigned for him in 08 in Reading, Pennsylvania, where there are legit Klan members registered to vote. Um, and because it's a party there. And we are saying, I'm saying right now, that he may be the tombstone. Of respectability politics. Absolutely. Because after Obama, can you say, like you're saying, the perfect example? I think part of that, though, and like this is the bigger discussion that I want to get to as we go through this episode, is is it really a lack of black leadership? Or is it we haven't shifted our perception of what leadership is? Like, we still talk about leadership as a dude standing in front of a crowd saying shit. And everyone responding to that. Yeah. Is, well, is TMZ, is TMZ okie-doking us? Well, I think it's going back to the Jesus question, because I think you're absolutely right. How we look at leaders is low-key a lot of people looking for Jesus. And that was one of the things that was really frustrating, especially working on, I, I actually working on the Barack Obama campaign. I knew what his platform was. He was a centrist. He was always a centrist. He never said he wasn't a centrist. But I watched one by one as everyone I knew 
projected all yeah. of this shit that he mm-hmm. never projected said. radical shit on him. Yeah, they projected all this radical shit on him that he never said and started calling him a flip flopper. I'm like, this guy isn't Jesus. He's not the second coming of Christ. And and I think that's the void that even when you're black and you're secular, you're looking to fill somebody to come and save you. Now that we've beat up on the right, center right, uh, quite a bit, let's uh, shift uh, to the left. Um, and I think it's really like so part of when we were first talking about this whole discussion, we had like a kind of we got sidetracked in some other things, but I think that using this idea of a relationship, especially describing how the <laughs> left and liberals treat uh, the black vote is probably a pretty good analogy. So, you know, what I call this is the left's courtship and then subsequent spousal abuse of black lives and the black vote. <laughs> I love the poetry. Oh, so uh, I don't. Yeah, get po- uh, I don't usually get poetry from you guys. So I love the poetry. While while the right waged a sustained campaign uh, of overly keeping blacks in their place, the left consistently silenced black voices by more subtle means, as we discussed in our "Why Now" episode, which is epic and awesome, and you gotta fucking listen to it. And it's the one just before this one. Uh, the constant trade off of what's best for black people in exchange for the political expediency, um, that phenomena and it repeating over and over again, that's well documented. So, uh, you know, guys, take us, take us to the next place. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I was doing the research for this and like Juan just said, it's pretty well documented and I didn't want to like get carried away with just like throwing example after example so I, where I ended was, you know, kind of like the most fucking glaring historical moment that like beautifully encapsulates this sentiment and also like perfectly excoriates like the left is Martin Luther King, the person that is on everybody's mouth and tongue when they want to say mm-hmm. like, oh, this is how you should do a peaceful revolu- re- revolution. This is how you should peacefully protest. Like the guy that they all hold up. And I'm like, all right, cool. You really want to hear what he had to think about you? Let's, let's talk about it. Um, yeah. So the guy who's been painted as the, as the, the total pacifist saint, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it's an, he's va- the Santa Claus of it, the civil rights. Movement. However, it's an oversimplification of what he Definitely. was actually, actually about. Well, I call it the Santa Clausification of the civil rights. Movement. I mean, listen, there's nothing. Oh, yeah. So, so he's talking about passive resistance, it's passive resistance and it's nonviolence, nonviolence, but nonviolence as a weapon. Yeah. The, don't, don't, there is, there is nothing nonviolent about holding on for dear life at, uh, at a lunch counter. Yeah. See, when, yeah. when there's when nothing King nonviolent ta- about yeah, that. Yeah. When, when King was talking about nonviolence, he was also talking about it from a tactical perspective about protecting black lives. And again, mm-hmm. getting back to what you were talking about of this, uh, this addiction that black people have to, pragmatism which is you know they have more guns they have more numbers we're never gonna beat them in a straight up fight you know i remember my dad telling me when i was younger um you know my my father uh emigrated from haiti to here when he was in high school he said this is a nation of bullies 
it's always going to be five to one. Sure. So when I think of King's nonviolence, he's talking about resisting with your pocketbooks, hitting them where it hurts, hitting institutions, not being scared, not being passive. And using the media. I mean, let's, let's yeah. be clear. The, the, the pictures of angry, evil-looking white people tearing at, uh, at people who are just sitting in a chair... Yeah. The the image of hoses in Birmingham on children in a park. The the image of German shepherds. I still look at German shepherds like, you racist motherfucker. <laughs> uh, the image of German shepherds coming at, you know, children and young men and women and, um, you know. And those kinds of this images. This was strategic. He knew. Very strategic. He, he was playing knew, that long game. He knew that to take the whites in the north off the fence, you had to show them something that they couldn't explain away. You had Mm -hmm. to show them something that they couldn't ignore. That's the whole point about Freedom Rides, is taking good little white boys and girls down with us Mm -hmm. to show them what it's like to be us. And one of the things that Martin Luther King understood in that moment, and this is where I feel like people misinterpret him the most, is that he understood that the battle for America was going to be for our souls. So last time that we did this pod, we were asking, why now? Why does white America give a fuck? Why have white Americans been getting tear gassed every single day in places like Portland? White moms. Like, white moms. 50, 60, 70-year-old white moms. Day. And the answer yeah. is what Martin Luther King was talking about. He knows that they are battling for their souls. White America knows that years and years of unchecked privilege, unchecked lack of humanity has cost them. And they know that they don't want to live in that world. They've looked in the mirror and they don't like what they see. So Diane and I can uh, soapbox preach uh, all all night and day. Guys, please tell us. What uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said in his uh, letter from Birmingham jail. Yeah, so he was in jail in Birmingham, and he was receiving all these letters from white ministers, like, you know, giving him quote-unquote support. And it was those letters of support, I'm doing air quotes now, <laughs> see me. Um, that led him to write this letter from Birmingham jail, which you will probably never get taught in middle school history, but it's one of the best things that he ever wrote. Um, it's perfect in its like most eloquent takedown of white liberals and moderates and exposing their neglect of actual black concerns uh, for the sake of maintaining public order and their own comfort. Um, a few highlightable quotes from his letter. You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham, but your statement, I'm sorry to say, falls fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about those demonstrations. Um, while Sounds like Cap. Sounds like right about now. Yep. Yep. Like everything that you hear, like that's the thing, like Juan said before, like we're only a week away from all of these speeches. Like Booker T. Washington's speech still feels like it could have been written by... Terry Crews. By Alan Keyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It could have been written by Alan Keyes fucking yesterday. Yeah. And and this this letter from MLK feels like it could also, also have easily been written by 
any other a BLM, like, any BLM person in yeah, the jail, yeah, any movement for Black Lives person uh, who had the ability to do this. Um, so the next quote is a. Uh, this next quote is specific into. Um, so he's talking about Bull Connor, who was the infamous of, I believe in Florida, I may be wrong about the state, but he was the uh, local head of police there who was running uh, for office to be reelected. And he did get ousted. But uh, MLK's point was that while Mr. Batwell, who had defeated Bull Connor, who was like an unabashed racist, is much more a gentle person than Mr. Connor. They are both segregationists dedicated to the maintenance of the status quo. So it was, it was about Alabama. They were both uh, yeah, Alabama, Alabama, yeah. Yeah. Alabama politicians. So he's talking about the guy that threw me in, not much different than the guy who uh, lost his job because he threw me in here. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then he went on to say, like, lamentably, it is a historical fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Like, you have to, like, he's saying, he's laying it out right there. It's like, we have to fight for it. Like, if we that's, just set That's around, a fucking axiom. That's yeah. one of the most true axioms about the, the 20th and 21st century. And it's, it's one of the things that's become as true as you can't win a land war in Asia and uh, <laughs> never... Uh, never go against a Sicilian in a game of death or whatever. But uh, I guess somebody was listening because I think don't that's attack what we're Russia in now. the winter. Like, <laughs> don't attack <laughs> Russia in the winter. <laughs> just like all of these historical things that don't do, ain't nobody giving up any advantage mm-hmm. on their own. Nope, mm-hmm. they're not giving it up on their own. You have to force them to give it up. Yeah, and, and by force, I don't mean cajole or. Or browbeat. I mean, well, that's force. what the respectability force. politics police have been doing. Um, you know, in the beginning, when when people were burning down uh, uh, police stations, they were saying, you know, this is not the way to get it done. I'm like, actually, history says otherwise. This is exactly the way you get shit done. You burn, you you burn some police stations down. Some people get killed, and some shit happens. How did MLK Jr. say it, guys? So this is this is probably the most scathing part. Um, he says, first, I must confess overall. Uh, oh, no, sorry. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed by the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's greatest stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizens counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice. Who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. Who consistently says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action. Who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom. Who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. So these are all the jersey wearing, you know, the the white folk from the suburbs 
wearing jerseys with black people's names on it, saying, I believe what Kaepernick is saying is right. I just don't like how he's doing it. I don't want to interrupt yeah. my And that's just not suburb people. Bullshit. Like, don't forget, Ruth Bader Ginsburg also said that shit. So, like... <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, listen, so... Listen, don't, don't... Leave her alone. Listen. She's going through a lot. <laughs> we all know she's a national treasure leg. as long as she's, she's a national. She's a... She that is woman is a hold saint. on, Ruth, just for like, she, you know, she, She's got this months, one little bony finger keeping us from fascism. That woman is a saint. You don't say nothing about RBG. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, like and I, I think, I think one quote, one quote. I think she might be the first binge click pardon. One <laughs> quote, yeah, we can, we can absolutely absolve her, even though that's against <laughs> our ethos and everything we're for. Uh, we'll do it for her. Um, but, you know, I mean, what, what we said before, and I hate to go back, but he said it so beautifully. And I know we're going back in the topic, but um, we know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Um, and so that's how he couched it. And that's what he's talking about, uh, about you know, the inertia, the inertia of the liberals who empathize with us, but won't put their asses on the line for us. Yeah. Won't and, put and their prosperity on the line for us won't put their power on the line for us and that's what i want to harp on like legitimately because you know as we discussed in the last episode of how even when we're in a deep revolutionary cycle and the the liberals the radicals are the ones pushing that change when we see that shift to moderatism and the moderate start gaining power and taking control. Like I th- I think now it's really incumbent upon us to keep an eye on those motherfuckers and hold them accountable because hell yeah. Like I don't want to end up having to have this conversation again, 10, 20, 30 years down the road. Like I want us to take this moment and own like our uncles did, it. like our parents did, yeah. like their parents did, like their parents did, like their parents did. Like it's on us to like not let the the moderates like sit on their asses and 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 pull us all back. Like we have to keep pushing them further and further to the left. Like that's the only way that we, you know, regain this argument. That's what I mean. That's what the right did. The right has left the far right. Push them and further so and further right. What does Joe Biden come out of his bunker to say? <laughs> exactly. But this motherfucker. Comes out of his bunker and says that Trump is the first racist president of the United States of America. Are you fucking listening, bro? Uh, (laughs) He ain't even the first. He ain't even the first president that admitted to being racist. Being racist. Yeah, he's not even the first. There's like about forty three of them that did. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. So you heard the Nixon tapes? So to say that shit, yeah. I mean, we're trying to help you. Please go back in the bunker. Shut the fuck up. Yeah, but the sad part is, is that all he needs to do to win the black vote, if things keep going as they have been for the past hundred or so years, all he has to do is keep his mouth shut. No, like it's like seriously, Joe, shut the fuck up and go, you know. Uh, go wax your iRock. Honestly, honestly, shut the fuck up and just go wax your iRock in the driveway with your fucking cutoffs. Like seriously, 
Yeah. Um, we'll give it to you, but shut the fuck up. Like I think the next the next part of uh, that's my letter. free that's my free election uh, uh, advice to Joe Biden. Yeah, yeah. I, I think of, the next all part of his, is all of his all of his talking should be through tweets and written interviews that are written by staffers. Yeah. Bro, we'll wake you up at the convention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're like weekend in Bernie's. It just, we'll, just watch we'll, the teleprompter. Ha- we'll hand you a cup of coffee before uh, the debates, and just stand there at the podium. And smile when that motherfucker says something stupid and just do the, like, thumb to the side like this guy, this fucking guy. That's all you have to do in every debate. Just when Trump is talking, going, listen to this guy. Uh, Just shut the fuck up. You know how everybody tells LeBron, shut the fuck up and dribble? (laughs) Shut the fuck up and clean your sports car. (laughs) We got this. So, yeah, and I think the next part of MLK, of the, the Birmingham letter is, like, a perfect encapsulation of... The DNC, um, Democrats in general, outside of like you know the more radical black uh, contingent, um, and it perfectly sums up how we're just talking about Joe Biden. And he said, "I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that law and order exists for the purpose of establishing justice, and that when they fail in this purpose, they become the dangerously structured dams that block the flow of social progress." I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that the present tension in the South is a necessary phase of transition from an obnoxious negative piece in which the Negro passively accepted his unjust plight to a substantive and positive piece in which all men will respect the dignity and worth of human personality. Actually, we who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of this tension. Um, yeah, I, 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 there's like those last two quotes I read. I don't think there's a better to this day summation yeah. of the current. And he state could be, of he could be talking. Uh, yeah, he could be talking about BLM. Mm-hmm. That quote can directly refer to BLM. They're not agitators. Mm-mm. They're not agitators. They are simply telling you the truth to your face about who you are, America. They're telling you the truth to your face, and you view that. You're indignant. You view that as provocation. When someone tells you the truth and you view it as provocation, you're living wrong. And that's why White Fragility is the New York Times number one bestseller right now. It was at the top of the charts. We've been coddling white America for too long. And now they're going to catch these hands. hey yo. <laughs> <laughs> The Democratic establishment still officially remains pro-police and willing to increase funding to failed policing policy. And in none of the liberal states that have decriminalized marijuana has there been adequate policy put into place to address the decades-long oppression of black and brown people in the war on drugs. So Chris Wallace almost got kicked in the face by Trump in an interview this week (laughs) when he said, when uh, Trump was like, he's... He wants to do, he wants to defund the police. He wants to abolish the police. And Chris Wallace, a Fox News jackass, said, "No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't, yeah. Mr. President. No, he doesn't." And he goes, "Get it, get it, get the charter, get the charter that he signed." And they get it and they read it, and not once does uh, Biden. In fact, Biden's been clear He's been in the past two clear. weeks about, "I'm not about defund the police. That's not me." Yeah. 
And, you know, he should be catching it from us from, from saying that shit. Yeah. But, like, Trump is actually lying on him about being with us. And he's like, no, sir. I am with y'all. So, listen, still vote for Biden. So, so, still vote so for Biden, what are though. we going to do about it, devil advocates? Motherfucker, that is the fucking... The fuck that's a hard body karate question right there. So, uh, so I mean, listen... We're talking, it, it's really easy to point fingers and to talk about how things have been done wrong, but this is kind of how we get back into that Booker T phase where we start attacking the problem as if, from, from the point of view that we are the problem and that something that we're doing is wrong that needs to be fixed. But the question of black leadership is a legitimately black problem, and at Devil Advocates, we're not just about pointing fingers. We're about creating a framework for real solutions. All right, so who are the players? Let's talk about the players right now. Who could well, lead us? Well, before... Or who has been leading us and who could lead us? Well, before we, we think about who the players are and give and give people um, too much unneeded airtime, let's talk about the framework as far as how we pick leadership because one of the points that, that Gaius had brought up earlier was our addiction to... Christianity and how we look at leadership in the first place. Should we be looking at a singular person to be solving our problems? That might be a bit leading, but we should really be asking ourselves, is there well, the kids, one person? Can this be, can, can, do we need unification? Well, do we need kids, someone to kids, rally behind? The kids have made a resounding no for that, right? Because BLM yeah. is a largely... Um, uh, decentralized, yeah, but not in a bad way, yeah. But no, a, I mean, a so decentralized movement that has a group of leaders from all over the country. And I mean, I think it would be even hard. Like I know personally, I can't na- like I can name movements that I'm behind. I can name issues that I'm behind. But when we start thinking about like the top leaders in BLM, they're they're not names. I can name anybody. Which yeah. I think is a I, really good thing. Yeah, I think there's... Ahead, so we Yeah, I, I have, have recently been doing a lot of work with um, the Movement for Black Lives, which is actually the umbrella organization that covers BLM and about 140-some other uh, black social justice organizations. Very uh, broad coalition. Yes, uh, of which BLM is probably like the largest member of. And... Um, I think the first point in that conversation is let's look at what has happened to the most effective black leaders in the past. Are any of them still alive with us today? And yeah, and and I don't think peacefully in their beds asleep or were they assassinated by the state? So, I mean, I think when you really start thinking about like black leadership, the first thing you have to address is the fact that like it's not safe to be a singular no one wants to appoint someone to die the panthers are all dead in their jail uh the only one alive is bobby seal yeah the only one alive and free is bobby seal and and the truth is like i remember like we've talked about this before the night barack obama got elected and angela davis sorry yeah angela davis asada shakur is still living by the way yeah she's still angela angela davis just said a thing about uh she wants to vote for biden not for nothing. They broke her. If you think no, if you think you're too revolutionary, listen to uh, <laughs> yeah. listen to Miss Angela, Davis. to Angela Davis. But anyway, well, I think I think that 
when you're a black person and you you're thinking about who to elect as a leader, the 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 question the it, in the back of everyone's head is who do you want to string up to die? Because my 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 uh my uh, vision of success for Barack Obama was that he lived through his first presidency. The first black president could make it eight years and come out alive. I'm gonna take that W. We but, talked about it in this podcast. We we all uh, in the last podcast. We all were saying, please get back in that limo yeah, at inauguration. Because yeah, we saw that motherfucker shot. We so, saw that motherfucker so shot. I have definitely on the ground seen like a, a, a move towards less hierarchical, less hierarchical um, types of political movement. Because no one wants to basically, no one wants to be Jesus. No one. Why does someone need to die in order for the move? Why? Do, why does one of us need to die and need to be sacrificed or martyred? And that's been true of not just black movements, but through all revolutionary movements, the people who die become martyrs. And and I think people aren't about that anymore. Not yeah. it. Yeah, I think. I just, a- if anybody on radio, this is radio. I have my uh, index finger to my nose, <laughs> and I said not it. So I'm not it. There's a beautiful sentiment. Um, I've heard it like used in you know a lot of conversations I've had with people from um, the movement for Black Lives and Politico. Actually, just published an article yesterday about this specific thing that we're talking about of how they are a very decentralized uh, organization, and it ties back into what we were saying before about like what is the perception of leadership and like we have this very kind of patriarchal. Uh, archaic understanding of like leadership means there needs to be like one strong figure like standing in the forefront and so people have referred to not just you know movement for black lives black lives matter but even we think back to um occupy wall street and people are saying like oh it's a leader leaderless movement and the way that uh people thought they were crazy yeah and the way the m4bl states it is uh they're not a leaderless movement. They're a leaderful movement. Like everybody's a leader. Yeah. Like yes. you can go yes. go back go back to your like local Blockchain. area and organize and like you're a leader now. And I think that's like a beautiful way of like viewing it. Like we we have so much to unlearn in how we even like interact with our own circumstances and how we are viewing our consumption of media how we even approach like our own uh, internal conflicts because we've been taught to view things in like this very myopic, like one way of doing it. And like, there isn't just one. Well, also it's, it's harder to take down. It's harder to take. It's, I think one of the things that we've realized in the making of this show is that nobody's perfect. And if we're sitting around waiting for this perfect person or perfect people to lead us, we're gonna lose a lot of numbers in the Nobody's nerfed. Yeah, I've been and I've been saying this for a long, a long time. Like I I, I mean, I'd rather take someone who is well meaning and reschool them into how to be an effective member of a community and an effective member of a movement than uh uh than 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 try to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So we can have we're having this conversation internally while you guys listen and can't chime in. So, so who are they? Let's let's so, call them out. So so these are the ones that I, I that, that that I've seen. So the big one, and this is the ones that that get the probably the most. You love seen. these guys. These are the hotep's. Now I'm going to define what's a hotep? A hotep. 
Now, and I'm talking about the derogatory name Hotep. Um, a Hotep is a person who has a steadfast belief in illogical conspiracy theories, an arrogant... Illuminati lizard people. <laughs> Illuminati lizard people, 5G. Jay-Z is part of the Illuminati. Um, an arrogant adherence to respectability politics. Um, again, this, this need to like work twice as hard. Um, but the biggest thing is sexism and homophobia that vacillate from thinly veiled to if being gay is natural, how come there ain't any, any gay elephants? There so, are, actually, uh, so. yeah, they, 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 there are they tons suck of you gay elephants. Listen, Bronx Zoo has had a pair of lesbian elephants <laughs> for like 30 years, bro. They're like actually, a linchpin. What the fuck are you talking dolphins. about? It's like you can there find are gay whales. homosexual relationships in pretty much everything in nature. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but they're, they're, they're kings of massage noir, but, but the, the thing is, I think they used to, they oh, were again, enunciate that because it's a beautiful word massage and noir. you are Haitian, so you can fucking massage noir. There you go. Massage noir. So, um, I mean, I remember I used to get, uh, get tricked by these guys when I was younger too, because they, they lure you in with the whole like, uh, pro black rhetoric and then they kill you with the homophobia and the sexism. Um, so and the yeah, fu- and the fuck boyery, the fuck boyery, or and also just the lack of logic. They usually read like one book, and they, that's their entire. They like discourse. to date ugly white women, <laughs> and they have a secret fetish for for white. Women. Just and they the, have ashy ankles. Just that's the, the final. The ash, I don't. I ashy, didn't know. There's ashy a lot ankles. of ashiness because they they don't believe in lotion. I I do have ashy ankles myself. I gotta say, I think it's my nine percent sub-Saharan African. I'm sure According there's a hotel right DNA now DNA listening test. to us on a 28.8 GPS <laughs> modem that is enraged. Motherfucker's got dial-up. <laughs> got dial-up. <laughs> All right. On the other end of the we are not a monolith spectrum, there are the uh, black Republican slash black churchgoers. Now, I tried I've really- I've never felt ho- racism. I've, I've never once seen racism. I don't know No what one's ever been racist to me, I and I live in Alabama. Music. So I tried to make them two separate groups, but the more I researched it, the more they seem to be the same group. And it goes back to what Guys was talking about I mean, before. you're right. Alan Keyes, super religious. Ben Carson, super Christian. Super Christian. Yeah. And, and yeah, you can tell by the megachurch and the perm. So anyway, so, um, <laughs> <laughs> so again, their beliefs are usually driven by desperate clinginess to respectability, col- uh, politics, and in more extreme cases, being respectable also means a proximity to conformity slash whiteness. Ben Carson. Or Candace Owens. Who still has Hurricane. Like the people who still, I mean... It's it's not a it's not a deal breaker, but usually that that's a sign. Um, then now there's the HBCU elitists. Now this would be the more secular offshoot of the Black Republican churchgoers. So they go to church maybe like once or this twice a Julian, year. This is Julian. This is Julian in school days. Yes, yes. So he he might not be a Bible thumper. Big brother, oh my <laughs> tea. <laughs> He's in a black frat. He went. He is to definitely black Greek. He is definitely black Greek. And and they kind of, sometimes they live in Atlanta and they live in this world where uh, of black uh, a black excellence. And what's codified is this kind of like they always look down at people like oh you should get a passport instead of like you know buying Jordans or whatever. And they're not as bad as say the pound cake speech, but they have airs. And then cis straight black men. A.K.A. the white men of black politics. 
generally the most vilified, but also the most guilty of, ma- of engagement in misogynoir. We're the ones for whom the first black president created an entire initiative to assist and uplift. We're the ones whose beatings and deaths at the hands of the police galvanized the community in a way that the beatings and sexual assaults and deaths that those same police inflict upon black women do not. We're the ones whose mistreatment inspired a boycott of the NFL, despite the NFL's long history of mishandling and outright ignoring far worse crimes against black women. We're the ones who get the biggest seat at the table and the biggest piece of chicken at the table, despite making the smallest contribution to the meal. And that was an article from uh, Very Smart Brothers where they're on the route right now. But um, essentially, I think this is where the biggest tension lies is between cis straight black women and my next group um, in the, the diaspora of leadership, black women. And so if we look at all the major movements that have happened in the last four years or so, the Me Too movement, black women, Black Lives Matter, queer black women, black trans lives matter, queer black women, um, we're at the forefront. Black women push Bernie left. Push black women push Bernie. I mean, at any black type women, of... Black women buoyed <laughs> Warren's campaign. Uh, you know, and made it relevant. Uh, black women right now are the shit. They're the ones, well, listen, they've been the shit forever. However, right now, I said this on, on the last podcast, if you're not listening to a black woman right now, if you're not following her orders, you're on the wrong team. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that is where a lot of the tension is is happening right now. Um is between um, cis black men and and black women. Um, and I yeah. think I've been saying this for a while, for a couple of weeks now, that like, you know, this is something that needs to be addressed um, because yeah. black women are not really having it anymore. But before we go into that, um, there's a couple other groups because I wanted to try to make this as comprehensive as possible. There's your black radical anarchists. Um, small... But I feel like this group is the most silent group because I feel like they're just black folk that have completely divested from... But they've been about about it forever. So the, the black anarchist goes back to the roots of... This is proto-Black uh, black Panther. Like, what do you mean? Yeah. People forget that the Black Panther Party mm-hmm. is a populist movement, is a, mm-hmm. is a, you know, is a, a people's movement. They are steeped in... Um, socialist yeah. uh, underpinnings. Like when I think of like black anarchists, when I, when I think of like local organizers, these are the people that are doing urban farming, people that are learning how to be sustainable uh, and live off the grid. Basically, it's just like, you know, fuck your shit. We're going to build our own shit. The food and they don't really have the, yeah. the community, the community shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, communism, you know, it's it's but not yeah, communism. It's, 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 it's taking the, 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 idea the Black that Panther breakfast program and, and kicking the it up The breakfast around. program, Yeah, exactly. we're going to make our own shit. We're going to school. <laughs> yeah. I right. mean, there's been um, a huge influx of, of black parents divesting from American schools and homeschooling so their kids. One, it's one not of the just Christians that, anymore. It, it occurs to me, and it's one of the things that, you know, it, it's a story that I, I don't tell a lot of people. Uh, in that campaign in 08, I went out to Reading, and... Um, there was a gentleman, spitting image of Booker T. Washington, matter of fact, <laughs> spitting image of him. But he tells me that, I mean, this is uh, kind of uh, East Central Pennsylvania. 
and uh, he's telling me about how you know him and his people, uh, they were steel workers. This is near Allentown, so it's steel. These are the the hills of of Pennsylvania where steel workers are, and all of them were steel workers, and they were um, union workers, obviously, right? And so uh, I have two books, probably the most valuable books in my possession. And there, one is like a Maoist text. These are pamphlets that were fucking illegal. <laughs> but a, pa- a Maoist pamphlet and like a Cuban uh, Comuneros uh, uh, pamphlet about getting uh, white Americans to come to Cuba and farm for a week to support, you know, the the movement of communism in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, and he gave me these books, and these are just amazing books. Um, but yeah, this is a steel worker, fucking J. Crew wearing, you know, old black man. Uh, but yeah, steeped in the steeped in the socialist, hardcore socialist movement, liberation movement uh, from back in the day. So we didn't just become radical. Like that shit's been that shit has roots. It does, but but we I feel like we don't hear from them that much because. They're not voting. Super marginalized. Yeah, super I mean, marginalized. That's, that's part of the ethos. If you're living off the grid, then why would you draw yeah, attention why would you to give yourself a crap? in the first place? And if, then, I, and then if I, you're I, handing I, random white dudes from New York City fifty year old pamphlets, <laughs> yeah, you might be a marginalized uh, radical living off the grid. Yeah, and I, and I feel like honestly they're the most uh, productively um, uh, pragma- black pragmatists. Because they're just like, you know what, fuck your shit. I got my own. That makes sense. They're like, I'm building a farm. I'm building a farm. <laughs> Nay Ruta. <laughs> he made Who the We just funny- featured in the we- last binge bites. <laughs> he made the funniest meme I've ever seen where there was a before and after picture. And the picture on the left is a picture of him ass bear out at some wild party. Um, and it says, before this pandemic, I was a Coke dealer. And the second picture is a current picture of him in these overalls in a garden. And he's a black <laughs> farmer. He's now. a black urban farmer. He's a black. Ur- when I met Nehruda, we were in college together. He was selling Coke and just being wild and just generally in and out of jail and just being destructive. Now he's a black farmer. Now a lot of his tweets are about, like, wish the rain would come. <laughs> and the bees. So um so that so let me bring it back to our last group, which is an interesting group because I really don't know how I feel about them. It's one that we want to talk about. It's the one we want to it's, talk it's about. It's our wheelhouse. Well, it's our it, and it's where our next black leader might most likely come from, and it's rich black people slash new money. And what I'm talking about is fifty percent of uh, the population of Atlanta. I mean ball players. I mean uh, I'm pretty much talking about Kenya Barris. Absolutely. But, uh, but I was like Kenya Barris. Uh, anybody who was talking not blackish, black AF, <laughs> black AF. But um, you know, uh, like Barry Gordy's kids. Like you got the Will and Jada's Will and J- Jaden Smith and Willow Smith. Okay, are don't very don't go down active. that hole. But I'm just saying. Don't go down the red table hole. There's a bunch We're going to have a red table episode. <laughs> Please don't go there. I won't. I won't go. I won't go. But, but these are people that I feel like black America is kind of holding their breath for. Um, they're, they're kind of seeing how they move. I think um, Jaden Smith has been doing a lot. He, he brought, uh, he brought uh, water back to Flint, Michigan. That's a big deal. 
he got his whole like water campaign. I don't know if that's yeah, but cool. he, he makes terrible music though. I don't care if he makes terrible music if he brings water to Flint. I mean, but it's really bad. Okay, but here's it's, here. So here's I don't think where it's I'm bad. gonna break that down though. Well, it's huh? not bad, but it's not it's not bad, but it's not it's not it's good. Not the best either. Like the problem <laughs> is, is like. But there, there we go again with the whole black you're leadership looking at thing. The new money, but these are the people putting band aids on if problems. Like when. Yeah, when but Jayden if he's comes bringing to the water to Flint, who cares if he can rap? Because, because that water this is how be R. Kelly skated away and was molesting no, women for about? years. Because he <laughs> how, could. How are you bringing R. Kelly into this? Well, no, because, witness, but that's because just like, just because like black people will give people term. a pass. Just like black people will give people a pass because they're and good. That's what I'm saying. What we you're demonstrating stop. right now is that black people will also cancel you if you're doing good in the community, but you can't rap. That's not cool. I didn't say... No, I'm not saying cancel him. I'm saying, saying don't the look to him as a leader because he can front money for clean water, but he can't put together policy that makes it so we don't have to worry about people fronting money for clean water anymore. So why, like, are you so, why are you so angry, guys? It, like what Kanye said, it would be great if you could give everyone a million dollars if they decided to have a kid, but even that doesn't fix the fact that that kid that you got a million dollars for might still get shot by a policeman the next day. Like, you don't, you, you can't fix it with these band-aids. And that's the problem with, you're right, I think a lot of black people are holding their breaths for new money. That's like why Kanye had even anyone show up for his campaign rally. But that's not who we should be looking for, because they're not fixing the real problem. They're still just addressing symptoms. And all that, Boom. like, this type of wealth can do is address symptoms. I want to see people bring, like, policy to the table i want to see people writing legislation i want to see people like holding other people accountable for writing legislation like that's where where leadership should be going so well that is actually not, that's a, that's a good segue into into um the next framework which is you know one of the questions that i posed to the group was is the biggest failure of black pragmatism in voting the lack of imagination of what could be because I see a lot of discussions that are structured in what people are doing wrong. But what if, if we're going to sit here and brainstorm this mythical black leader, what would they look like? Or what would black, I, I, what, what is the black leader? Can we, can we switch the conversation to discussing what we would like to see rather than just discussing what hasn't worked? Yeah, I, I think I, it's like like the lack of imagination is like the thing that comes up again and again because it, it is like part and parcel of the black pragmatism that also shows up again and again. So, I mean, and like we're all guilty of it. Like we talked about in the last episode, sure. you had even asked us, like you guys campaigned for campaign for Obama. If in two thousand six. Before he even ran, if you had thought like in 2008, you'd be campaigning for a black Democrat nominee named Barack Hussein Obama, you probably would have been like, get the Never. fuck out of here. Um, and, and and when they wrote about him in the West Wing, season yeah. six, <laughs> that whole Santos thing was based on Barack Obama. And we December, couldn't even imagine him not having a white wife. Yeah. In December of 2019, if you had said we'd be having serious conversations about defunding the police now, I would have said, hell no. Fuck out. If you so, told me that six me, months ago, I would have thought you were crazy. Yeah. So for me, lack of imagination is 
like something we all have to come to terms with. And what yeah. I've just decided to do is to like say, fuck it. Like anything's possible again. It's all back on the table. Um, that's how I've decided to live 2020 because this year has proved it. Like everything can fucking happen. So now yeah, we, like, we can't, sure. we can't keep negotiating against ourselves. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. at this point, I think what, what's happened is that like, cause we were talking about this in, in the last episode as to like why this is happening now. And one of the things I always say is capitalism ruins everything, including itself, because at the end of the day, you can't keep pushing people. And 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 the most dangerous people are the people that have got nothing left to lose. One of the things that I was saying before uh, in the last episode is while we have this time during this covid lockdown to 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 go on the Internet, to, to binge watch things and just be with our families. We shouldn't forget to dream. And maybe that's what America's homework is as far as being about shit. It's not just about looking at what's wrong. It's about dreaming about what could be. Yeah, I think like if 2020 has taught me anything is that everything is on the table again. Like, you know, I probably the biggest even internal philosophical shift I've made just this year is like realizing how far my own like imagination was lacking. And I, you know, I'm a creative. I work in design. I pride myself on being an imaginative, innovative thinker. That's what and you're selling. Seeing how how much I'd allowed society to just dictate things that I took as like you know written stone at this point. I mean, I, um, I remember actually having this conversation with you. I might have been on some substances, but I was young. I was just like, dude, you're the best at what you do, you know. And I was just like, what the fuck do we have to lose? I've just kind of shifted to. I think everything is possible right now. And part of that is like, yeah, we're in like this really crazy, weird, like dark period where it seems like everything that could possibly go wrong is going wrong. But at the same time, like that's bringing about a lot of like new change and new motivation to right some of these wrongs. So um, I was actually having this conversation with another person that's like, in politics and movement adjacent and you know they were kind of feeling uh i i think conflicted i think that because what we were talking about is how there's still a lot of work to be done about intersectionality even within like the movement space um because we've also been taught that like you can't talk about everybody's problems you got to just pick one and like try to solve that and then eventually move on to the next thing but I like I was saying to them, I was like, you know, fuck that now. Like I say we just demand everything that we're supposed to get at one time. And like it's not on us that you can't fucking, you know, multitask racial justice and you know, disability justice and social uh economic justice. Like that's fuck that, that booker like, T shit. I'm tired of us being put pitted against each other, um, where we feel like we have to battle it out in the oppression Olympics to try to get one thing taken care of for people that don't really give a fuck about solving any of these issues. So for me, it's much more about like just saying, screw it. Like we should get all the things that we deserve, the things that we put in blood, sweat, tear equity into for hundreds of years. Um, Regardless of whether 
it was because of slavery, because you're dealing with uh, being a person who's lived with disability, because of your gender identity, because of your sexuality, because of any combination of those things. Like, you shouldn't have to choose over one part of your identity and say, like, okay, just kind of, like, at least help me out with this one thing. Like, no, fuck that. We like, want it all. Get... We want it all. And we yeah. deserve it, guys. And we deserve it all. Say that shit in the mirror. If you to yourself sound like you're echoing responsibility politics of saying, no, sir, I'm not asking for that. I'm just asking for this. You're wrong. Right? If you're, yeah. if you're negotiating against yourself, you're wrong. With the respectability politics, they took our self-respect. I think... That lack of imagination is is definitely like probably the biggest obstacle. That's that's why we have Joe Biden now. That doesn't mean that we can let our feet off the gas. Um, we can't take our eye off the prize. Like we have to keep an eye on these moderates. We have to keep pushing them for not just settling, not uh, opening themselves up for compromise in the name of expediency um, or electability um, I dare say Gaius you sound almost hopeful I am hopeful I, like I told you before in the previous episode uh, revolution comes out of hope not despair um, I've seen what's possible like we've all seen what's possible now we've seen that white people can show up if properly motivated it may take you know hundreds of thousands of them dying and <laughs> them all being out of work but they will eventually show up so you know um, we can talk about defunding the police now. We can talk about city council, city councils voting for it. Um, we've moved the needle more in the last six months than it's moved since the signing of the Civil Rights Act. Can you name a time yeah. in America? There actually, there hasn't been a time in America where all fifty states had protests just about racial injustice at the same fucking time. So, what our leaders need to do? is hope and dream we need we need to stop buying into this like idea that there's a, a thing about electability we, we need to just say like these are my platforms these are things i care about and i i demand to be heard on all of them just like three fits and just like the atlanta just like the atlanta compromise maybe we shouldn't be compromising anymore don't compromise you make demands we got to be about shit